I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending January 1st. Happy New Year, everyone. The end of the year and the beginning of a new seems like a particularly appropriate time to talk about endings and new beginnings. In this episode, the end of Moore's Law and Shannon's Limit, and what happens after that. The power and speed of electronic systems in the past 50 years have grown at an incredible pace. Integrated circuits in the 1960s contained thousands of transistors. Now they contain billions. At the beginning of the internet era, a fast datacom connection was measured in thousands of bits per second. Today, parts of the network transmit data at terabits per second. The increases in power and speed in our datacom networks have been predictably inexorable. We've known for a very long time, however, that we're going to approach limits. Processing power depends heavily on the number of transistors you can bring to bear on a problem. In 1965, Gordon Moore published a paper predicting that the number of transistors in a given area of silicon would roughly double approximately every two years. That would be accomplished by making transistors smaller and smaller. That's Moore's Law, which is famous enough that a very large proportion of non-engineers have heard of it. It was commonly understood that Moore's Law would eventually hit a limit. There would be a physical limit to how small you could make any feature on silicon. And after that, further integration on silicon would be impossible. Less well-known, but no less important, is a theorem devised by Claude Shannon and Ralph Hartley that predicts an upper limit on the amount of information that can be transmitted in a given amount of time on a communication channel, taking noise into consideration. It means there is a limit on data transmission rates, a limit basically on how many bits per second you can transmit. That theorem is referred to as Shannon's limit. It just so happens that the industry is simultaneously approaching the limits to both silicon device integration and communications channel capacity to both Moore and Shannon. Furthermore, those limits have places where they intersect. One intersection is where optoelectronic communication systems connect with the most advanced data processing systems in and around data centers. Infinera is a company that specializes in optoelectronics, and it does a lot of business at the intersections where Moore's Law is ending and the Shannon limit is being approached. Rob Shore is an engineer who is now the Senior Vice President of Marketing for Infinera. Rob, I discovered, is sort of a philosopher king of data communications, and I learned a lot during our recent conversation about undersea cables and data centers, about shadow networks and open networks, about quantum computing, about approaching the ends of Moore's Law and Shannon's Limit, and ultimately how the industry is figuring out how to get past both and continue to provide more compute power and faster communications. I'd like to share that conversation with you. What do you see from your point of view uh, in terms of uh, the silicon keeping up with how fast you can shove bits at it? Yeah, it's a great question. And as you said, it's an interesting perspective uh, that we have at Infinera because we're involved in both ends of that technology. Obviously, our expertise is in optical networking solutions, building lasers that transmit information over fiber. 
And, you know, recently, about five or six years ago, as uh, the signals that we're generating to transmit information, as they became more complex, we started employing a technology called digital signal processing, which is based on ASICs and microchips and processors. Uh, and they have become an instrumental part uh, in being able to produce increasingly high capacity transmission technologies. So as we start approaching these two laws, uh, you know, Shannon's limit for those who aren't as familiar is a theoretical maximum amount of information you could put on a single fiber, irrespective of the technology. And of course, Moore's law is making smaller and smaller and hence more and more powerful uh, processors. So uh, it's an interesting challenge for us. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, the current generation of uh, processors is at uh, seven nanometers. That's the, the size of the transistor. Um, and there's certainly going to be a five nanometer uh, generation, uh, and people are projecting three nanometers and two nanometers, although the technology becomes increasingly complicated as you get smaller and smaller, uh, and the returns become more and more diminishing <laughs> over time, right? Uh, like, you know, the previous generation from seven was 16 and then 26. So, you know, that's huge decreases in size, and going from three to two is, is less substantial and more expensive. Um, same thing with Shannon's limit. Uh, we've just done some recent trials over uh, Atl sub, uh, Atlantic fiber across the Atlantic, and uh, really you're looking at a maximum capacity of that fiber of about 30 terabits in that range, 30 terabits of information over that fiber, and we're getting pretty close to that with our latest generation of seven nanometer technology. So uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, interesting inflection point in the industry of, of where do we go. This, like I said, was at least one more generation that we have that we can see meaningful uh, improvements. But then what happens after that is a good question. On the Shannon side, um, I, can't you just, uh, you, we've, we're already doing some really sophisticated modulation schemes. Uh, can't we, do we run out of space with complexity there? Well, the issue with uh, the Shannon's limit, right, there's there's a, a limit to the amount of information versus the noise, uh, the optical noise that you get on the signal. So um, really the idea is what digital signal processors has, have enabled us to do is really come closer and closer to that limit by filtering out as much of the noise as we possibly can. Um, and there is just a, a real, you know, theoretical limit there. So uh, in more advanced modulation schemes, things like that will continue to get you closer and closer to Shannon, but you can never get past it. What you do get uh, and where we will see advancements is, what, you know, Shannon's limit is only talking about the capacity of a fiber. You can still provide significantly improved economics, right? You can keep doing incrementally improved economics and, and, and network value by building an individual laser, a transceiver that can do more, that can do more with less power in less space. Um, with less components. So the current generation of lasers, they're 800 gigabit per second laser. So 800 gigabits per second is what they can transmit. You'll definitely see future generations that are 1.2 terabits or you know three terabits. It won't necessarily improve the amount of information you can get on a fiber, but it'll certainly um, improve the economics of the network. One laser does the work of three lasers or four lasers. There are a variety of other avenues that you can pursue um, in adding value to a network, even beyond building bigger lasers. You can build laser arrays. That's an interesting way to go about it. Um, you can also, you know, the big challenge for Shannon's is really only in long haul and subsea networks. That's where you're really filling up the fiber because there's many fewer fibers to work with and a fiber is much more valuable. You know, you think about 
why does why does a fiber cost more money in a long haul network? There's the obvious piece, which is it's just more fiber and you have to plow it over longer distances. But that's not really the big issue. The issue is in order to get a signal from, let's say, Los Angeles to New York, um, you have to pass through a bunch of optical amplifiers. And from New York to Los Angeles, you're probably talking, you know, 50 <laughs> amplifier locations. So when I turn up that next fiber, it's not just the fiber itself. It's all the amplifiers in between. It's the cost, power, space, operations, troubleshooting, points of failure that all of those create. So this is why people really try to push the Shannon limit in sub in long haul. And you can imagine it's even that much more challenging in subsea networks where a subsea fiber build can be $150 million or more. Um, but it's not so much in the metro. Like in the metro, fiber is much easier to come by. I can often reach my destination with just a few amplifier hops, if any. Um, and so there's a lot of work we can do. While there's not going to be a lot of gains we're going to get from spectral efficiency in the long haul, there's a lot of cool things we can do by taking some of that long haul optimized technology and bringing it into the metro. As bandwidth requirements grow in metro networks, um, there's a lot we can do. You know, 100 and 200 gig is the de facto standard in metro networks. That's what most people are using. So we can, there's, we got a long way to go before we start making 800 gig in the metro. And there's a lot of advancements we can do in five nanometer and three nanometer technologies. It's gonna go a long way at helping that, that. So a lot of what we're talking about, it kind of depends on where you're shipping your data. So undersea cable is different from metro and is different from in and out of a data center. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, long haul and subsea are very, very similar. Uh, both trying the same problem is get as much information over as few fibers as possible. Uh, in a metro, it's quite a bit different, um, especially as we evolve the networks, right? Data centers have really changed everything. If you think about big things that have impacted um, telecommunications networks, uh, number one, of course, was the internet. That was a huge impact. As uh, no, no, obviously, everybody recognizes that this data center revolution. I don't think people even realize how substantial data centers has become uh, in the telecommunications world and in our everyday lives. You know, like I talk to my kids about it, and they have their smartphones, and they keep thinking, you know, these, a smartphone is actually becoming less and less significant because what they really are is rather than big, you know, massively powerful computers, they're essentially just windows to a data center. Almost everything you do on your phone is actually an application running in a data center. TikTok, Facebook, you know, Spotify, whatever it is, very little is happening on your phone. And this has been enabled by this massive proliferation of data centers. We went about 15 years ago, there was maybe 100 data centers in the world total. Now, the biggest city, uh, the city in the world with the most data centers, which is uh, which is uh, London, has a, almost 300 data centers in one city. There's more than 10,000 worldwide, and there's over 500 super data centers that are the size of like seven or eight football fields. So, what this has done, it's just dramatically changed everything. A, the way we live our lives, of course, the way everything we do on the on the way businesses operate. You know, like at, at Infinera, we used to own our own data center in our headquarters in California. Um, we had a big data center. That's where our email servers and file servers were. And most of what we did stayed on campus. We got rid of all of it. We have nothing now. It's all in the cloud. And if you think about what that means, if I want to send an email to my neighbor, to the person sitting in the cube next to me, historically, that just literally went to the switch and over to the computer. Now that hits the network. It has to go to the Microsoft data center and then back again. 
but more so obviously it's created a huge more impact on network traffic. But more substantially, as these data centers have essentially for businesses become a virtually unlimited pool of processing power and data storage. Um, and while initially it's impacted our IT department substantially, making it really much more efficient because we have many more resources to call on, what we really haven't tapped the surface of yet, or just starting to, is what do we really do with all of this stuff? Right? We're not used to having this amount of, of literally unlimited processing and, and storage. Um, and people are creating what are called data lakes. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. That term I've heard before. the phrase. And, and it's, it's, just a massive, the significance. It, it, it's just a massive pool of information that's stored. And now the question is, what do you do with it? Um, and this is where we started to see about machine learning and analytics and um, things like that. So I can start making some sense out of all this data that has been stored and making my business better with it. But from a telecom perspective, all of this has done is not only, of course, increase traffic demand substantially, it's changed the nature of traffic flow. Traffic used to always be what we call north-south, from the user to the internet. You call that north-south traffic. What's happened, though, is with all of these data centers, and massive amounts of information, there's a huge amount of data center to data center interconnect. They call that east-west traffic. And the east-west traffic is growing at several times the speed of north-south traffic. And it's for reasons like this, right? Netflix has two data centers. They want to replicate their movies. Well, that's you know 700 terabits of information that they need to send between those locations, right? Or what happens in some search engines, if you're in your Google Mail and you want to do a search, what Google does is they wrap up all the content of your mail, they ship it over to the search engine application, which could be running in a different data center, they do the search, and then they ship it back to the mail server data center, and then they feed you that information. So, I mean, it's just huge amounts. So all of this has created massive more bandwidth and different types of traffic flow. Like you had mentioned, um, data center interconnect has become a, a massively substantial um, source of bandwidth demand in the networks. Yeah, but there's a lot of different types of data. I'm sorry, not to, to, to prattle on about this, but there's a lot of different types of data center interconnect. Historically, people thought of data center interconnect as a metro application or a campus application where it needs to go a kilometer or you know 20 kilometers. But the reality is, is most of the traffic in data center interconnect is is long haul and subsea. So uh, you know, it's because it, Google doesn't have three massive data centers in the same city, but they do have. 20 data centers in North America, let's say, uh, and they want to interconnect all of those. And one really interesting thing is historically those data centers, operators, they call them internet content providers or ICPs, they used to lease services from the service providers, right? They would say, hey, Verizon or AT&T, give me 100 gig between these two data centers. And what they realized is that worked for 100 gig, 200 gig, but 10 terabits, they're like, hey, it, the amount of money I'm paying, well, the amount of money I'm paying per month for that service, I could build my own network. The <laughs> ROI on that is like six months. So they started these big, giant um, internet content providers started building their own networks and even laying subsea cables. So, yeah, so it's created this really kind of this interesting, almost like an overlay network. You've got the traditional service providers that connect users to the internet and internet pairing points to data centers. And then you've got this kind of shadow network that uh, is run by ICPs and others that uh, interconnect data centers. Well, it's really fascinating. The amount of data itself 
it, there there seems to be like a a, a circular phenomenon going on here you, the more data you have the more you can use the more you can use the more you transmit the more you transmit the more it changes the dynamics of the whole thing yeah absolutely here I, i'll give you a couple of really interesting statistics um if you think about how much information is added to the cloud every day um and by the way the cloud just servers sitting in a data somebody center. else's servers yes yeah the amount of information it's the equivalent every day of about 35 billion high-definition movies. 35 billion high-definition movies added every day to the cloud. You know, normally so, you know, people spew these statistics and they don't really, really seem to mean much, but that's like, that's that seems insane. That's crazy. Is there any impulse to make the network itself smarter, part of the... Part yeah. of the you know the the communicating part of the the datacom network itself. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the big things that's happening in telecommunications and in the infrastructure side of things is is the shift to what we call open open networking. So what do we mean? What do we mean by that? A great example of closed versus open is the smartphone industry. Uh, the original smartphone, BlackBerry, everybody had one. That great phones, but that was a closed environment, meaning you get all aspects of the solution from that one vendor: hardware, operating system, software, applications. We've now gone to the completely other end of the spectrum, which is the Android model. Android is completely open. You can get hardware from anybody, operating system, applications. Um, and when you move in that direction, what you end up with is just a dramatically more flexible and hence device that gives you greater value, right? right? The value I get from my Android phone is vastly superior to the value I got from my BlackBerry phone. My Android is a calculator, a camera, a flashlight, a level. I mean, you name it, it's on there. Um, and so this is the idea. Open ecosystems unleash innovation because you get lots more people that can innovate. And it enables me to integrate that into innovation into my product. And this is what we're seeing in, in networking now. We're getting away from device-specific functions and more into you know, what they call white box hardware that can then run variety of different applications. So instead of going to a, a, a office, you know, a, a telecommunication service provider office and seeing, you know, a, a, a DSL box here and a cable box there and a subscriber box there, you 30 boxes that each do one thing, you're seeing a row of servers that have software on them. The benefit of that is, you know, when I buy a digital, uh, a DSL termination device, it does just that one thing and that's all it can ever do. If that's a rack of servers that the digital, the DSL termination functionality of software, I can start now leveraging that, that compute resources, right? Those processors for other applications. I can add firewalls. I can do um, some type of content management there. So yes is the answer. By converting from these closed proprietary single function solutions to these more open software programmable solutions, um, you're going to end up with much more intelligent, much more, I don't say intelligent, much more capable networks that you'll then want to lay on top of it the intelligence to understand where and when to do different applications. I, we did about a year ago, I did a webinar with AT&T um, that talked exactly about this, you know, from Infinera, how we're enabling the infrastructure. And then AT&T talked about this creates opportunity and challenge because yes, I have these resources I can now leverage, but I need to put some mechanisms in place 
to understand what application I should run where and when, and when do they need to move around? And then how do I adjust the connectivity of the network? You know, it used to be where our only job in connectivity networks is get, how do I get information from the user to the internet? That was it, you know, and that's all we had to worry about is just how do I do that efficiently? Now, in a single metro area, I might have 50, 60 different destinations that I might need to get to, different data centers. And data center number one can have 100 gig of traffic today, and tomorrow it can have two terabits, and the next day it can be back to 100, 100 gig. So you've got to really have a much more flexible kind of on-demand type of bandwidth, um, kind of like the way the power system works, right? This is what we're trying to achieve from Infinera. Power is just there. You use it as you need it. You get charged for what you need. And if you're not using it, you don't get it. You don't have, but it's there for you if you need it. <laughs> um, and bandwidth needs to be the same way. And this is one of the key things we're trying to focus on at Infinera is how do I make bandwidth more like a utility where it's there when I need it and I only pay for what I use. And I can use as much as I want automatically. So a moment ago, you used the phrase challenges and opportunities. So I wanted to ask you, um, what are the, the, the proximate, the nearest uh, challenges that you see that, that you're dealing with and, uh, and uh, maybe some of the longer term challenges that you might see coming around the path, coming down the pike? Um, what is the industry working on? What are what what's the industry anticipating having to deal with, and um, what's the bag of potential solutions we're looking at? No, it's a great question. I think the idea is how do I make the networks more flexible, right? That's what everybody's trying to achieve. Uh, the path is is open. Everybody's kind of got that idea. Um, we need to they need to open their networks, get away from these vendor locked in proprietary solutions. We're trying to help with that um, by providing platforms that make that easier. So we're disaggregating functionality. Um, so uh, you've got, you know, each function is not only discreetly available, you can buy it as a discrete function, but they operate independently from one another. You know, we're, we specialize in optical transmission solutions, right? And there's two key aspects to an optical solution. One is the um, physical layer, like the amplifiers and, and optical line systems and the things that, you know, manipulate light and amplify light. The other is the transponders, the things that generate light, right? So the lasers, it's almost like uh, the highways and the cars, right? The optical line system is the highway and the lasers are the cars. None of that's the information, right? The information is all sits inside that. But we build the highways and the cars. And it used to be where you, if you bought a highway, which could last for 15 years, um, you'd have to buy cars from your highway vendor. Whoever highway vendor that was, you had to buy that cars from that same person. Um, and we're really trying to help by disaggregating those functions, enabling cars to operate independently from the roads so that no matter whose road you already have today, you have better access to a wider variety of cars, motorcycles, mopeds, trucks, vans, semis, you know, um, you can, and you can always have access to the latest technology irrespective of whose, uh, whose product it is. So this is what we're trying to do, and we're trying to make it easier to manage that overall solution because this is the real challenge for network operators. When you get everything for one vendor, a lot of you know clearly it's going to work well. They usually provide this nice, neat little package of management for the network and troubleshooting and things like that. If you've got two different vendor solutions working together, 
we can certainly ensure that they will functionally operate, right? That the car will ride on that road. But in terms of conducting traffic, um, you need new solutions for that. And this is where this concept of what we call software-defined networking can really come into play. Um, first of all, we've worked over the last five years, we as an industry has worked over the last five years or so to standardize the way one communicates with a networking device. They call them standardized interfaces, open uh, APIs, um, and there's a languages and definitions. So all these solutions, you can talk to them with the same language. Um, and they also, in terms of the way they model their information, so the way they, dis they, they describe their configuration, it's sim very similar to one another. That makes it a lot easier to integrate the next vendor solution in. Still, though, we need to help and work with network operators to make sure um, that it really works seamlessly together, that they can really provision services, um, that they can really manage and troubleshoot the network. This is a really important first step um, to going from the BlackBerry model to the Android model. And right when Android first came out, um, it, there was not 20 billion applications. Right, You didn't really see the benefit of Android. In fact, really, they were pretty much worse than BlackBerry phones, right? Um, but it was a change in mindset that opened the ecos innovation ecosystem that ultimately led to, of course, massive uh, value. And this is where we are. We need to crack open the ecosystem um, to unleash that innovation. And right now it's about making sure we can operate that way, making sure the phone, <laughs> the phone works and can be managed and make phone calls and do everything you need to do. And the benefit of that over time will be pretty substantial. Hopes and dreams. Uh, yeah. Next yeah. science fiction thing that we might see out of our network. What, what, or what, what would you like to see? You know, well, yeah, I mean, I see what I see in, in terms of optical evolution, right? This is, this, is, of course, is our specialty. One big thing we saw, there's a huge inflection point. There's been a few big inflection points in, in optical networking. It started with low-loss fiber. That was the birth of optical communications. Um, then we had dense wave division multiplexing, so I can transmit light in individual colors, rather, uh, so I could put more on a single fiber. Then you had this uh, amp fiber amplifier that enabled me to amplify the signal optically to make it go much, much, much further. Um, that was huge. Uh, then the next big thing was the concept of rotoms. Now I can actually steer individual colors of light in different directions. So I can take in a bundle of light, break it into individual colors, and steer light individually. Um, I'm going to ask big. you to give me the spell out on rotom because we've been using road as an, as an analogy. Oh, thank you. Yes. And I know that it's not the same thing. Yes, uh, Rotom is a reconfigurable optical add drop multiplexer. Right. Essentially, what you can think of is uh, I got a fiber coming in that's got thirty colors of light on it. I feed it into a prism. Literally, it's a like a crystal, and it breaks it out. Then I align an array of mirrors in front of that prism, so that the prism breaks it out, so that each color of light hits one of the mirrors, and then I can bend a mirror to angle the reflection and steer that light in a different direction. Now, current technology, yeah, current technology uses liquid crystal rather than mirrors, just like a television. Um, but early generations used mirrors. They called them MEMS, microelectronic mirror systems. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that's it. So again, the Rotoms made a huge difference in terms of more efficiently managing network, optical networks that are comprised of signals that are different colors of light. <laughs> you know, and I can steer it around more effectively. Wicked cool. So I've, I've interrupted you as you were giving me the, no, okay. the steps, uh, the, the, the generations of 
neat new optical technology. Yeah. What happened after Rodems? So after Rodems, we now get to uh, traditional transmission technologies hit a wall. Um, normally, the way you transmit a signal is it's light. Essentially, you can think of it as the lights on or off, on or off, on or off. One zero one zero one zero. Um, the receiver is essentially just an optical diode. It just detects light. Is there light? Is there no light? Um, you can only go so fast. Really about 10 gigabits per second is the fastest you can transmit information using that technique. So about seven or eight years ago, we came up with a completely new method of transmitting a signal that they call coherent transmissions. Mostly it's about the receiver technology that now can detect a lot more interesting properties of the light. Not only can it detect power levels, it can also detect um, the phase. I won't get into all the details of it, but it just enabled me to tell more about the light. That enabled me then to transmit more complicated ways, right? Is it moving left? Is it moving right? It's not just on or off. Is it moving left or right or you know, up or down? Um, and it just enabled me to vastly increase the amount of information I can transmit. This is what's enabled us to go from 10 gigabits per second with the old way up to now 800 gigabits per second, right? 80 times the capacity. So coherent transmissions, this new technology has been monumental for uh, the evolution of high-speed transmissions. Um, and now, of course, as we said, we're getting to the Shannon's limit. We're getting to the practical limit of what these things are capable of. Uh, and this is where we're starting to need to start seeing some more interesting new types of technologies. One thing that we've done that we think is going to be pretty powerful is the idea of this concept of what we call Nyquist subcarriers. The idea is a single laser. Um, you can actually kind of divide up the information in that single laser. So I can actually put different flows of information. Traditionally, if I transmit 800 gig between two points, it's a big, fat, giant 800 gig data pipe. And all that information needs to go between those two locations. With Nyquist subcarriers, I can actually subdivide that big giant 800 gig data pipe into much smaller chunks of individual data flows. The benefit this is in that it, like yeah. uh, you know splitting up the spectrum. I mean, uh, it's not in my mind. I'm thinking yeah. you know red or you know are you? It's not quite. Yeah, I mean because. Uh, that what you're talking about is just traditional dense wave division multiplexer. Each laser is generating a different color. Right. You're leaving me behind. Sorry. I know. No, it's okay. It's 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 hard to, to describe exactly what it's doing, um, exactly how it's doing it. Um, but think about it this way. Um, uh, in a mobile network, right? How do mobile networks work? Well, I've got a radio at cell tower. How many radios? And pointed in a single direction, I have one radio. Right? I mean, I know there's lots of radios pointing in different directions, but there's one radio. That radio is over a, a, a particular portion of spectrum. Your phones, it, that one radio can be connected to a thousand phones. Each phone then just dials into the portion of, of radio frequency that's allocated to it. And that one big radio can, can aggregate from all these thousands, you know, hundreds or thousands of different sources. That doesn't happen in optical today. In optical, if I put a laser on one end of the fiber, I need an exact same laser at the other end of the fiber. 10 gig on this side, 10 gig on that side. 100 gig on this side, 100 gig on that side. What subcarriers enable me to do is essentially break, send uh, separate uh, flows of information, independent flows of information using the same laser, just like a cell tower radio does. Now, if I have an 800 gig laser on one side, I can have 50, well, 16, I guess, 25 gig lasers on the other end. 
I'm glad you can do the math, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. so, um, so, or whatever. So the idea now is it's just a more efficient way to use these high speed lasers. It's not going to help that much in long haul or sub C where really I'm trying to take a lot of information between two points. But think about as we move into 5G networks. Today, a typical cell tower in a 4G world maybe is generating one gigabit worth of information, one gigabit per second worth of information. With 5G, they're looking at that one cell tower generating 100 gigabits of information, right? And so this is one of the this is one of the big challenges that optical innovators like us are, are trying to tackle: is how do I take some of these high speed, high performance optical technologies that are designed for long haul subsea, how do I make them useful for metro networks? Because the capacity in a metro is getting to a point where it needs that. And even in the access, and that's where this idea of, hey, one big laser talking to a bunch of small lasers um, becomes really powerful. The real benefit of that is getting back to that utility thing, like trying to turn um, optical networks or transmission networks into a power utility. The benefit is if I have a bunch of lasers talking to a big fat laser, if one little laser needs more capacity at any given time, I have access to it because I'm talking to a big fat laser at the core. So, right, I'm not limited to a small laser at the hub. I have access to 800 gig of traffic or 400 or whatever gig of traffic. So I can much more easily distribute traffic from the big hub, big laser to all of the lasers at the edge. So I get a more of an on-demand type of capacity uh, spec scheme. So that's 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 in the next two years. <laughs> Wicked cool. We'll keep an yeah. eye out for that. Yeah. Uh, we call it, by the way, that's called XR optics is what we call it. Rob, very cool. Anything before I leave, before I, I sign off, anything I've neglected to ask you about that's got you excited? Well, we, you had asked about far future science fiction things. The XR is not so science fiction-y. What's, what is some of the science fiction-y stuff that, that's pretty cool is, you know, we are getting to a point, as you mentioned, with Moore's Law, where it's going to be difficult to, the, the investment and return on investment for things that are sub three nanometers is, is really going to start to struggle. And I think there's going to, there needs to be a fundamental shift um, in the way we build processors. And this is where we get into, maybe some people have heard of this concept of quantum computing. Um, yeah, which I, I do think there's a lot of things that need to be tackled on that. Um, but I do think that's going to be an important aspect. And this is where instead of it just being your, you know, the way computers work today and the way electronics work today is you're essentially transmitting the charge of an electron. You know, there's charge, no charge, charge, no charge. Um, and there's only so much you can tell from that. What quantum computing gets into is where you're actually transmitting or, or analyzing particles or groups of particles, and you can analyze lots of characteristics about those particles, spin, rotation, all um, photon, photons are one of the ways of doing it. Um, but you can analyze a lot more about it so that instead of each pulse giving you one piece of information, each pulse, again, if I use some layman's terms here, each pulse can give you a billion pieces of information. So you could just radically increase the amount of processing that can occur um, in a given amount of space size and whatever. That's one really interesting thing. The other interesting thing from an optical perspective is if anybody's ever heard of the term um, quantum entanglement, it's also a really- yeah, Okay, you're, you're going to get into some weird stuff. Yes, what, this, is, this is when you've got two particles no matter how far apart, 
they get, they're still, they're still connected somehow. And whatever yeah. you do with the first one. Yeah, it does the same thing. So let's say I take two photons. Yeah. And I entangle them. And then I send again, just being very, um, very, very simple explanation. If I entangle two photons and I take one photon and I send it to the moon and I've got one photon on earth and one photon on the moon, if I wiggle this photon in a certain way, the other photon that's sitting on the moon will wiggle in exactly the same way instantly at the exact same time. So you get instant communication over any distance. Um, and uh, I mean, again, this is, this is pretty way out there because how to, how to, Leverage this. Isn't, isn't this exactly the thing that freaked out Einstein when he's when he figured out what he was what he was talking <laughs> yeah, about? What did he say? This is some. I, I'm trying to remember the quote. This is some spooky, weird stuff. <laughs> I think it's his quote, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that are out there, but the reality is, is we have um, at least probably another ten or fifteen years worth of uh, uh, continued progress on the current road that we're on before we really hit a dead end. Um, and we have that length of time to find new new ideas and new ways to do things. So uh, yeah, it should be exciting times. It's a fun time to be alive, I'll tell you that much. Really interesting technologies and ways we can communicate. That was Rob Shore, Senior Vice President of Infinera. If you'd like to dive into the matter further, as if that wasn't enough, one of Rob's colleagues at Infinera has written about it on the Infinera website on a page dedicated to blogs there. It's called Moore and Shannon, A Tale of Two Laws. There's a link to it on this podcast episode webpage. And that is your weekly briefing for the week ending January 1st. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com, slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced at Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week and Happy New Year.